0: Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 90 for the final third of October 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the Billy Meyer predictions about ringed planets, specifically Jupiter and Saturn, and whether his statements were made before or after they were known or speculated by the scientific community. I want to start this out by being incredibly specific with what I'm saying in this episode up front. The claim has been made by some people who followed the alleged UFO contactee Billy Myers material that he was told many years ago about certain facts about certain things, some of them being about the outer solar system planets, in particular for this episode, things about Jupiter and Saturn. The claim by some Meyer followers is that these statements by the alleged extraterrestrials to Meyer and then published by Meyer were before they were known to humans on Earth. Therefore, the information published by Meyer proves that he was and is in contact with extraterrestrials. For example, Michael Horn, his authorized American media representative, wrote, quote, "...with literally dozens of other such documented examples of Myers having published specific, accurate information years, and even decades before terrestrial scientists, the case must be recognized as being authentic based on these irrefutable facts alone." Quote. Elsewhere, Michael Horn has written that Meyer published quote, "...volumes of specific, previously unknown information." End quote. The purpose of this episode is to see how irrefutable these facts are, and when they were actually known to terrestrial scientists. For the purposes of this episode, I'm going to assume that the English translations of Meyer's material are correct, as published on Michael Horn's website and the futureofmankind.co.uk wiki, except in one case that I'll explain towards the end. I'm also going to assume that the dates on them are correct, such as the Contact Report 115, having been published on October 19th, 1978. The question then, for this episode, is the very specific one of, is the material published by Meyer A, correct, and if it is correct, was it B, known before it was published by other people on Earth? The two weaknesses in this approach are first, that I cannot possibly go through every single claim, so I'm going to go through some of the ones that have been argued about the most by others as being more ironclad evidence of the contacts and ones that I personally find more interesting. The second weakness to this approach is not so much a weakness as a statement beyond what is possible for anyone to attest to other than Meyer, that's me or Meyer's followers. I'm not going to try to figure out how Meyer could have gotten the information from a terrestrial source if it was available. I'm simply stating that if that source was available, then the claim that Meyer knew it before anyone else on earth is falsified. And I'm stating that if that source was available, that Meyer could have gotten it from that source or another, And that source, such as a newspaper article or simply a friend of his who was an astronomer or had a friend who was an astronomer, is a more likely mundane explanation than that he was told it by an ET. After all, the claim for his prophecy is that this stuff was known before terrestrial scientists, and that's a quote, before terrestrial scientists. Not that it may have been known by some Earth scientists first, but unknown to Meyer, therefore Meyer got it from ETs instead of the source on Earth. So going in, after this very lengthy preamble, to recap. One armed Swiss farmer claims he's in contact with ETs and he publishes material on lots of stuff. You can go into the archives of the podcast to find out more about Billy Meyer's backstory. People claim that he publishes stuff before it's known to anyone on Earth, therefore the ET contact must be real. I'm going to go through some of those claims and see what I find. I also want to thank a few podcast listeners for volunteering their time to read over some of what I'm going to talk about for omissions or inconsistencies. Through this exercise, I'm going to pay most attention to the objective statements. For example, whether something is there or is not there, has a specific number of things, or is a certain size. If Meyer says that something is similar to something else, that's not really objective enough to definitely say one way or another. For example, in Contact Report 210, He said that he saw a, quote, similar ring on Jupiter as to the one on Saturn. End quote. What does similar mean in this case? Since I can't really know what's going on in his mind, I can't objectively score that statement, though I might be of the opinion, and I'll argue a bit later in the episode, that Jupiter's ring system is very dissimilar to Saturn. But that's my opinion and my interpretation of the adjective similar. And now with that, five-and-a-half-minute intro and preamble, let's go ahead and get started. Perhaps one of the most objective things that one can discuss is the number of something. One might think that, though it's a bit less objective when one has built-in outs. In this case, the first allegedly confirmed prediction or statement by Meyer has to do with the number of moons that Jupiter has and the number of moons that Saturn has. Listed by Michael Horn as part of corroboration number 163, Billy states in Contact Report 115, written October Nineteenth, Nineteen 1978, that Jupiter, quote, has 17 larger moons and several smaller ones, end quote. Unfortunately, this is too vague to score as an accurate prophecy. What's the cutoff for a larger versus a smaller one? The four Galilean satellites make up much more than 99% of all of the mass of the moons of Jupiter. By diameter, the smallest Galilean satellite is 3,122 kilometers. The next largest is Amalthea, with a long radius of 250 kilometers. More on Amalthea in a little bit, but that's less than 10%. So there's another natural break in size between Lita and Calero, possibly, where Lita is 16 kilometers and that other one that I mispronounced is 9 kilometers across. But that's 16 moons, Leda and larger, not 17. Most astronomers refer to Jupiter as having four large moons and then a gaggle of smaller ones. The number of known Jovian satellites now is 66, which is not enumerated in Meyer's writings. One might be tempted to say that this is a myth, despite it being listed as a corroboration, but I'm going to be conservative and generous and say that it's simply too vague without a specific definition of several smaller ones. The next line in the contact report, or CR for short, is by the alien Semyasi, who stated, Quote, For certain reasons that may not become known on the Earth before the month of September, 1979. So we wouldn't know for at least about 11 months after this contact report was written that Jupiter had more than the 14 moons that were known to that time. Now we get into more specifics. There were 14 moons known prior to Voyager 1's encounter with Jupiter. They started the Jupiter observation phase on January 6, 1979. Closest encounter with Jupiter was around noon on March 5th, 1979, and the Jupiter observations stopped on April 13th of that year. Voyager 2 started its observation phase on April 4th, about a nine-day overlap, and ended August 5th of 1979. Two more moons, were discovered by Voyager 1, and one was discovered by Voyager 2. The one by Voyager 2 was announced in 1979, and the two by Voyager 1 were announced in 1980. While the images were taken in 1979, the actual discovery of the moons from Voyager 1 images weren't made until 1980 in two papers by Sinnott in Science and Science News. However, The discovery by Jewett and others of Adrastea, or Adrastia, maybe, was made in August. It was submitted that same month as an abstract to the Division of Planetary Sciences meeting scheduled for October of 1979. It was then embargoed and published in Science on November of 1979, as well as presented at that Division of Planetary Sciences, or DPS, meeting in October. It's true The press release was not made available until October. Remember, though, the prophecy was that we wouldn't know about them before September, which we did. One could look at this a few different ways. First, objectively, one must admit that this was known to some people on Earth before September of 1979. Second, cynically, one could easily predict that moons would be discovered in the Voyager images, After all, they were searching for them, just like we'll be looking for more moons from New Horizons as it gets to Pluto, and the 13th and 14th moons of Jupiter had just been discovered 5 and 4 years earlier. Given that the encounters were in March and July, the closest approaches, and that there is a major planetary science conference in October, It is logical to say that moons would be discovered in 1979 from those images, but not announced until that DPS meeting in October, hence the quote, not become known on Earth before the month of September, end quote. This happens all the friggin' time, where mission teams work furiously as soon as the data are downloaded, get their abstracts written and submitted, get the papers written and submitted and reviewed, and everything is then embargoed until the meeting so that they can get their big-timed press release and the whole team is at the meeting to talk to the journalists. That's what happens. It's not a leap to expect that. And so, I would argue that this claim is both falsified, as in, they were known before September, but it was also a pretty safe prediction to make, that they would at least not be known to the general population until after September, as in, during October's DPS meeting, during all those press releases when you get a flurry of astronomy-related press releases, and Voyager 1 and 2's encounter with Jupiter was the big news of the year, astronomy-wise. Given that, and the probability and expectation of finding moons, this is a classic type of safe prediction to make that one has a very high chance of coming true, especially when ignoring that the information was known to mission scientists before the big press release. This situation also illustrates the dangers of only using press releases as your source for when something happens, because a press release only happens months, if not a year or two, after something has been discovered. You have to make the discovery. You have to run it by colleagues. You have to write the paper. You have to submit the paper. You have to have the paper peer-reviewed. You have to revise the paper and then resubmit it and have it re-reviewed. Then you can get it published, which can take months. Then, if it's big enough, you get the sexy press release when your paper is finally published. Meanwhile, dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of people already know about it because of this lengthy process. Now that I've eaten Jupiter's moon number to death, let's look at Saturn. CR150 states, in part, from Billy, quote, more satellites orbit Saturn than what was already assumed, end quote. Given what I just said about Jupiter, and given that CR150 was written October 10th of 1981, one and two years after the three moons from the Voyager program were announced around Jupiter, this was a very, very safe bet, especially because moons are stable within a region called the Hill Sphere around a planet, and we had barely begun to tap that region looking for satellites of Saturn from Earth. Moving on, he states, quote, To my knowledge, it has been argued until now that Saturn only has its 10 or 12 moons, although it is true that there are 29, if I omit the Edonaden. Meyer then goes on to ask whether these additional moons will be discovered by terrestrial scientists. The alien Quetzel replied in part, quote, They revolve around Saturn 29 moons. After the discovery of the moons around Jupiter, scientists now reckon that they will also still find some undiscovered satellites around Saturn. So there, he's basically acknowledging effectively what I just said. But what's the actual number? Prior to 1980, there were 11 known moons of Saturn, which just conveniently happens to be between 10 and 12. In 1980, there was an additional, or were, an additional six moons discovered, according to Wikipedia, although I think it was actually three in 1980 and three in 1981. So, already, at least his, quote, to my knowledge, end quote, was incorrect because in 1980, a year before this contact report, we already had at least 14 known moons. Moving on, just as with Jupiter, where there are 66 known moons, not 17 plus a bunch of undefined small ones, Saturn now, as of 2013, has 61 known moons. One can either say that Meyer's statements are therefore false, or too vague, since the term adoniden, A-D-O-N-I-D-E-N, does not have a specific definition. On the side of them being false, we can do the same exercise of ranking that we did with Jupiter. There are 22 known moons within 2 million kilometers of Saturn, since he says elsewhere that many moons are within millions, plural, of kilometers from Saturn. But that's 22, not 29. Or one could say that there are 17 known moons as of 1981, when this contact report was made, but Phoebe was also known, and it's within 13 million kilometers of Saturn. Within Phoebe's orbit, we now know of 26 moons, still not 29. Or, looking at diameter, there's Titan at over 5,000 kilometers across. The next largest moon of Saturn is Rhea at only 1,500. There is another natural diameter break between Tethys and Enceladus, 1,100 kilometers versus 500 kilometers, which is five moons Tethys and larger. Another natural break in diameter by a factor of two is between Sjarnak and Pandora, but that's 13 moons, Pandora and larger. There is no other good natural break in size, nor mass, that will get you 29 on one side of the break and the rest of the moons on the other. Nor is there a natural break in discovery year. There were 11 known by 1977. There were another three at least discovered in 1980 by terrestrial telescopes, which was before Voyager's encounter with Saturn. Another three from Voyager 2, then one in 1990. Not 29. Then there were a whole bunch in the year 2000 2000, that took the number past 29 moons known. So again, either Meyer is simply wrong, or, if you want to be more conservative, this prediction has a built-in out and is simply too vague to confirm or refute by not telling you what the Anodinen, or Anodinen, Adoniden, there we go, what those are. And I looked at other contact reports, and I couldn't find out what that term that I obviously can't pronounce is. Let's take a break for a bit from the moons and go on to Jupiter's rings. In 1975, contact report 31, Meyer wrote, "...whereby I also see once again that Jupiter has a fine ring similar to the rings of Saturn." End quote. Now, as I already said in the intro, I would not consider them to be similar to the rings of Saturn, but that's not incredibly objective. What about the bigger question of whether Jupiter even had rings and when we knew about them? It's true that no one knew for a fact that Jupiter had rings before their official discovery by Voyager 1 in 1979. That does not mean that no one had thought they were there, or had predicted them and a betting man would have put them into a prediction. The fact that the Voyager team even looked for rings around Jupiter should tell you that some people thought they were there. To quote from the book Planetary Rings by my current boss Larry Esposito on page 12, Six years earlier, Pioneer had detected a disappearance of radiation belts near the planet that could be explained by their being removed from that particular location by absorption due to a Jupiter ring. After some argument, Tobias Owen convinced his colleagues and the Voyager project management to invest precious minutes as the Voyager 1 spacecraft passed above the Jupiter equator to stare at apparently blank space in the direction of a possible ring. This investment paid off when the smeared image clearly showed a fuzzy ring surrounding the planet. So in March of 1973, which was two years before this contract report, and in 1974, one year before this contract report by Meyer, we have people openly discussing the possibility of rings being found. In fact, you can go again to the DPS abstracts from 1974 and read the title of a submission, The Possible Combination of Radiation Belts and Dust Rings on Jupiter. This was by T. Gold. He hypothesized that, quote, Jupiter may provide similar circumstances to Saturn, and its rings may simply be too weak to have been observed. A sharp increase in impact rate was, in fact, noted by Pioneer 10 in the vicinity of Jupiter. Quote. In other words, another line of evidence to expect rings, this time not from radiation, but from particle detection itself. These were repeated in papers by Phileas et al. in 1975 and Acuna and Ness in 1976 though this latter one is, of course, after Meyer wrote his contact report. But if you really wanted to, you could in fact go not one, not two, not three, but 12 years before this contact report to 1962, when there were two papers in the journal Soviet Astronomy, one entitled, On the Ring Encircling Jupiter, and the other, Possible Existence of a Ring of Comets and Meteorites Around Jupiter. And, of course, if you want to go really out there and show that Meyer wasn't even the first prognosticator to say that Jupiter has rings, the famed remote viewer, or infamous remote viewer, depending on your point of view, Ingo Swan wrote in 1973, two years before Meyer did, that he went on his psychic journey and saw that Jupiter had rings. Again, two years before Meyer. So this information was out there and being openly speculated about in several different circles at the time. Yet this is claimed to be proof positive of Meyer's prophecy not only of the rings' existence, but also their composition in the document Absolute Proof of Advanced Knowledge of the Rings of Jupiter and their Composition by Billy Meyer from his 115th Contact on October 19, 1978. This document was written by Michael Horne. Michael claims that it was an astronomy picture of the day post from 1995 that was, quote, the first article to suggest what the rings were composed of, end quote. Clearly, it was not. There were books written about Jupiter and chapters about the rings well before 1995, and given where they are relative to the moons and how unstable ice is in the area, we had pretty good ideas of what they were made of and that it was a dusty-type material but that gets us a bit ahead of the next topic, the source of Jupiter's rings. In CR 115 from 1978, Meyer makes another statement about Jupiter's rings besides saying that they do in fact exist. He says, quote, And so, will it also not be found out that the ring clouds around Jupiter, to a large extent, consist of tiny particles ejected from large volcanoes of the moon Io? End quote. The alien Semyazzi replies effectively, yes. I'm going to talk about volcanism on Io in a bit, but first, what is the source of Jupiter's rings? Meyer is stating fairly unequivocally that it's material from Ionian volcanoes, or at least the majority of the material is from these volcanoes on Io. However, well after the Voyager observations in Contact Report 201 from 1985, Meyer wrote that Jupiter's rings were made from, quote, Only a single and small comet. Which is it? Well, it's not by any stretch primarily made from material from Io. Io does produce a torus, a donut shape, of material around Jupiter, but it is not considered by anyone, except someone trying to retrodict something, to be a part of Jupiter's rings. One main reason is that it is well beyond the ring system, where the Phoebe gossamer ring extends to 226,000 kilometers from Jupiter, and that's the extent of the ring system. Io and its plasma torus orbit about twice as far away, 420,000 kilometers from the planet. The second reason is kind of what I just said. It's a torus of plasma, not a dust and or ice ring. Io ejects material that goes into orbit and is made of highly ionized particles that pretty much by definition are a plasma torus about the planet. And it was thought at the time that Io might contribute to the rings, but we now know that the composition of the rings and Io and Io's torus are vastly different. Instead, its micrometeorite bombardment of the innermost four moons of Jupiter, which are not Io, that replenishes the rings, primarily from Amalthea and Thebe. Sulfur and other material from Io does not, by any stretch of the imagination, it is not the dominant constituent of Jupiter's rings. If one wants to claim that the Io Plasma is what Billy meant, the context of the statement and the contact report belies that claim. Billy stated that Jupiter's rings would be, quote, similar to the one on Saturn but a torus of plasma, highly charged particles trapped by Jupiter's magnetosphere in orbit and not visible to the eye, well, that's a very classic example of post-hoc rationalization. If one wants to claim that some newspaper article, such as the one from the New York Times from March 12, 1979, said, quote, the extremely ionized sulfur particles found in the huge ring encircling Jupiter at the orbit of Io, etc., etc., end quote, And therefore, since the New York Times used the word ring, it is similar to planetary rings in any normal, common, or scientific use of the word, they would be wrong. It is not unusual for newspapers to use incorrect terminology. In this case, they very much did. Anyone who studies the ioplasma torus will tell you. It does not behave as a classic ring would. It is not considered a ring. It is not unusual for newspapers to use simplistic words to get the general idea across, however. It is also not unusual for press releases to do the same. Instead of evidence for Meyer being correct that the ioplasma torus is actually a ring, because the New York Times used that word, it's evidence that the New York Times used incorrect terminology. So now we move on to Contact Report 201, which, if you read literally, contradicts 115 in terms of the source of most of Jupiter's rings. It says that it's cometary as opposed to Io volcanoes. It also reflects one possibility for the origin of the rings that was once favored, but this was well known in both technical and popular literature at the time that Contact Report 201 was written. In fact, people as far back as the 1800s with French astronomer Edouard Roche was... or. Rocher, possibly, probably not. uh, He speculated that planetary rings were made by comets or moons breaking up into a disk around the planet. We also had mass estimates of the rings from the Voyager mission based on how bright they were, and many assumptions about particle sizes and density, and all of that comes out to about the mass of a comet. Again, Contact Report 201 was written in 1985, several years after the Voyager's encounters with Jupiter. And it's not what we think the rings are made of today. They're not ice around Jupiter like they are around Saturn. They're dust, formed from the small impacts of the four innermost moons of Jupiter. Not Io. Not a comet. Also contained in Contact Report 201 is the statement that ground-based telescopes can't see Jupiter's rings, and that even the Hubble Space Telescope won't be able to observe them. While it was true and known at the time that ground-based telescopes couldn't see the rings, Keck, in Hawaii, observed them successfully in 1997. As for the HST, Hubble Space Telescope, it easily observed them in 1999, a Meyer et al. paper from 1999. Possibly they observed them earlier, but I couldn't really find any evidence of that. It also observed them in 2002 and 2003, and I've linked to an image of the rings of Jupiter observed by HST in the show notes, along with the moon Metis, or Metis. This means, again, Billy was wrong. Except, actually, in this case, according to the contact report, it was the alien Quetzal, not Billy, who said that HST would not be able to see these rings. In fact, Quetzal stated the, quote, "...Jupiter ring already stands in dissolution and might already be gone in less than a year," end quote, which would eliminate them by 1987. Well, they're still there. While this is perhaps not as objective as one would like, since Quetzal said might be gone, an advanced alien cross-dimensional species should be able to tell that the rings are A, being replenished, and B, how quickly they're being destroyed versus replenished such that they would not be destroyed within one year. So, one has a couple options here. First, Billy went out on a limb and was wrong about Io making the rings, and he tried to cover seven years later by saying that it was a comet instead, which is still unlikely for Jupiter's rings. Or two, the aliens were wrong on several things. Or three, well, that's about it. These statements about the source and observations and lifetime of Jupiter's ring were simply wrong. So either Billy was wrong, or if you believe he was told this by aliens, then they were wrong, or they were lying to Billy. With that in mind, let's move on to the next topic, of which one of the faculty at work said, I consider the discovery of Io-Volcanism to be the second most important in the history of planetary geology. The first was Galileo's observations of the moon, which allowed most of planetary geology to be figured out through comparative planetology. End quote. Meyer wrote in Contact Report 115 again from October 19th of 1979 that Semyazi stated, quote, The moon Io, of which you said something, is, by the way, the most volcanically active planetary body in the Jupiter system. End quote. Just before that, Billy wrote what I talked about before in the source of the Jupiter's rings that there were quote, large volcanoes on the moon Io. End quote. This is listed in the Meyer Wiki under Corroboration 165 that Meyer was the first to write that Io was volcanic. And remember, the claim is that Meyer knew this before any terrestrial scientist. Investigating this particular claim required a lot of investigation on my part, but what I found is that, as with Jupiter's rings, Meyer may have been among the first out there to specifically state, as a matter of fact, that this is the case. But as a matter of speculation and hypothesizing among scientists, this was already out there. And scientists aren't going to be the ones to state something as a matter of fact. They're going to wait for data, unlike various types of pronosticators that try to score prophetic hits. From the book, conveniently titled, Volcanism on Io, in the first chapter, section 2, is the heading, Prediction of Volcanic Activity. I will now read from that, because listening to someone read a textbook is the most fascinating thing in the world. Even prior to Voyager, it was evident from ground-based instruments that Io had unusual far-infrared photometry and radiometry, with higher brightness temperatures at 10 micrometers than at 20 micrometers. This is from Morrison et al. 1972. and unusual thermal inertia as Io emerged from Eclipse, e.g. Hansen 1973 and Morrison and Cruikshank, 1973. These observations were difficult to interpret in the context of Io's being a dead, inactive world. Just before the Voyager 1 encounter with Io in March of 1979, a notable discovery was made. Witteborn et al., 1979, announced that an intense temporary brightening at two to five micrometers in the infrared had been observed, which they explained as an isolated surface area at a temperature of about 600 kelvins on a planet where the peak daytime temperature is about 130 kelvins. Another hint at Io's dynamic nature came from Nelson and Hapke in 1978, who suggested fumarolic activity as a possible mechanism for producing short-chain sulfur allotropes on Io's surface to explain features in Io's spectrum. So what do we have here as we go into the second half-hour stretch of the podcast? We have an observation published six years before Meyer's contact report that showed Io had unusual thermal activity that could be interpreted as volcanic and pretty much could not be interpreted as Io being an inactive, dead world. We also have other observations published in 1973, five years before Meyer's writing, showing the same thing, strongly implying that Iowa was active in some way. Fast forward to 1978, the same year as Meyer's report, but published in January, well before Meyer's October writing, that there were several suggestions of fumaroles to explain heat and chemical signatures. Fumaroles, for those who don't know, are openings in the planet's crust often found around volcanoes that emit steam and gases and are really hot. Add to that the basic mathematical calculations that had been made many years earlier that showed Io being the closest large satellite to Jupiter would be the most subjective to tidal heating, meaning that it's basically kneaded like a ball of dough by Jupiter's and other large moons' gravity. And so we know that... If Io is volcanic, it's going to be the most volcanic object in the Jupiter system. Finally, there's the science paper that came out weeks before Voyager 1's encounter in 1979 by Woodward et al., who explicitly predicted that there would be volcanoes on Io. Now, you might be saying, but that's right after Meyer's prediction! Well, that's true. That is after Meyer's prediction. But they also talked about their early results at the October DPS meeting in 1978, just at the time that Meyer was writing this contact report. While this last point is coincidental timing-wise, and one might say that it's not very good evidence, there's everything else. And not only were there all the pieces there to predict that Iowa was volcanic, but people were openly talking about volcanic-driven activity before October 1978, when Meyer wrote about it in his contact report. And so, under the bar that has been set that Meyer was the first to say these things, that they were unknown to earthly scientists, I have now shown that this is not the case for Io's volcanism. It was not yet confirmed, but any person would be able to guess at it, and it was being openly discussed, if not necessarily believed yet, without the observational evidence from Voyager 1. This actually leads right into the next statement by Meyer that Io quote, exhibits no too great crater landscape, but rather a fantastic evenness, despite the many craters. I talked with a scientist who was around at the time. He stated that while this material was out there and people were holding out hope for volcanoes, they were fully expecting to count craters on Io's surface to determine an age estimate. While that is, of course, not documented, written evidence, in other words, it does go to the mindset at the time that the popular discussions expected there to be craters. And if one adopts the null hypothesis that Meyer wrote what was in the popular culture, if the very recent cutting-edge popular culture, then one would expect him to write something like that. And because he did, he was wrong. Io shows no craters. Zero. Still part of what's claimed as corroboration 165 from Contact Report 115, we have more on I.O. Meyer wrote that the volcanic material ejected from I.O. forms a ring system, which I already pointed out it does not, and it is, quote, a heavy formation of sulfur ions, end quote. Michael Horn and others have said that this is a strong Meyer corroboration of prophecy, because of popular newspaper articles written in 1979, after the report, one stating, quote, The Voyager 1 spacecraft, a continuing source of surprises as it speeds towards Jupiter, has startled scientists again by revealing that the enormous planet is ringed by a super-hot electrified sulfur particles, quote. Therefore, the thinking goes we didn't know about sulfur around Jupiter from Io just about yet. Again, this is a problem with relying on press releases. I already quoted from a 1978 conference abstract that stated sulfur had been detected on Io. You can also go back to 1977, an abstract talking not only about Io's sodium cloud, hydrogen cloud, and potassium cloud, but also one by Pitcher and Shemp with the title, quote, The Extended Sodium and Sulfur Clouds of Jupiter, End quote. It states, quote, Ionized sulfur emissions were observed around Jupiter during the 1976-77 apparition. The spatial distribution of fully ionized sulfur emission was observed to vary substantially from day to night. On 17th UT, December 1976, the sulfur-2, doubly ionized sulfur emission, was strongly concentrated inside of Io's orbit in accord with the observations of Munch and Trager from 1977. End quote. And I found another abstract from 1977 talking about sulfur from Io and a paper from 78 all about it, all linked up in the show notes. So again, one must say that it was well known before Meyer wrote Contact Report 115 that sulfur was in Jupiter orbit, where Io was also, and that the press release and news articles from after Contact Report 115 play it up and ignore observations and publications that were made years earlier. It also bears mentioning again that there haven't been observations of much sulfur at all in Jupiter's rings. It's mainly rocky dust, which is yet another major difference from Saturn's rings, which are mainly ice. And this dust, again, originates from the four innermost moons, Metis and Drastea, Amalthea, and Thebe, which spectroscopically match the rings, not Io. Moving forward in time to May 31st, 1986, we have Contract Report 209, in which Quetzal allegedly said about Jupiter's aura, translated, quote, The moons of Jupiter play a very important role for this phenomenon, but they are not solely responsible for this. In addition, Jupiter's polar lights aren't always uniformly round. The effects of the sun are also to be mentioned, which play a certain role in connection with the polar lights. This is listed as corroboration number 92 in some lists of Meyer's foreknowledge of something. Problem is, this was all well known at the time. In fact, some of it was known three decades earlier, as far back as 1955 when we detected radio signals from Io that indicated there were aurora that interacted with radio signals that we saw from Jupiter that indicated that it also had aurora. I have a paper linked up in the show notes that talks about Io affecting Jupiter's decimetric radio emission, in other words, it's aurora, and one from 1980 about the aurora. In the popular press, there were numerous news articles in 1979 talking about Jupiter's aurora. Science papers published at the same time also discuss it. Given that the effects of Io on the radiation from Jupiter caused by its aurora, predicting in 1986 that the moons play a role is like predicting in 2013 that Obama is going to win the 2008 U.S. presidential election. It also follows directly from this, that if Io is affecting the aurora, then it's going to perturb them as Io orbits the planet, making them not perfect circles. And as with Earth, the Sun also affects Jupiter's aurora, just not as much on Earth because Jupiter is five times farther away. What's neat is that the other Galilean satellites also affect Jupiter's aurora, which we didn't know at the time, as far as I can tell, but Meyer didn't write about them. That would have been a more interesting prediction, or statement of prophecy, whatever. So while this is listed as a corroboration on several lists, I consider it falsified as a prediction because, while it's true, it was well-known prior to mid-1986. As another example of something that may not seem to have been known at the time but actually was, there is the case of Jupiter's moon Amalthea. Going back to Contact Report 115 from October of 1978, Billy stated, quote, Thus, you also told me that the moon, which I designated as an enormous chicken egg, is only about 200 kilometers in length. I think it was the next moon of Jupiter, whose name I no longer remember. In other translations, the last part is written as, I believe it was the moon closest to Jupiter. After congratulating Billy on his, quote, "...admirable memory in all things," end quote, Semyazi replied, quote, "...the moon, which you've just mentioned, is called Amalthea among you," end quote. This is listed as another part of the giant confirmation number 165 by Michael Horn and others because of another newspaper article from March 3rd, 1979, which stated, quote, "...Amalthea, previously estimated to be 75 to 150 miles in diameter... "...appeared to be shaped more like an egg than a sphere." To nip the last part of Meyer's statement in the bud, Amalthea is the moon third out from Jupiter that we know of, Metis and Adrastea Adrastea being interior to it as mentioned when I talked about the source of Jupiter's rings. One could, of course, get around this as being a refutation of Meyer's statements by pointing out that he said he thinks it's closest, and that medicine and Adristea were not discovered until 1979, although this would also sort of contradict his apparent foreknowledge of their discovery in the same contact report, but this is still a somewhat more minor point. As for the size of the moon, and for it being shaped like an egg, Well, this is yet another case of using popular press as a first without understanding the science of something. A paper from 1975, three years before Contact Report 115, estimates that Amalthea, quote, has a radius of 120 plus or minus 30 kilometers, end quote, which means it would be 240 plus or minus 60 kilometers in length. So the size was known, or at least estimated. As for the shape, here's where there's nothing specifically written, but where one must rely on general knowledge of planetary science and physics to show that it was general knowledge, and that it would be a triaxial ellipse, or egg-shaped, and not a sphere. Every object in the solar system larger than a few thousand kilometers is pretty close to spherical. But even Earth bulges by tens of kilometers at the equator. Ceres, the largest asteroid, or now the dwarf planet thing in the asteroid belt, is about 975 by 975 by 909 kilometers. In other words, one axis is 7% shorter than the others. The second largest asteroid, Pallas, is 580 by 555 by 500 kilometers, where the shortest axis is 14% shorter than the longest. The second most massive asteroid, as opposed to largest, is Vesta. It's 573 by 557 by 446 kilometers, where the longest axis is 28% larger than the shortest axis. As you go smaller, you get these ellipsoidal shapes. This is because you simply don't have enough gravity to pull yourself into a spherical shape or stay molten long enough for that to happen. Given that this was estimated that Amalthea had a long axis of 240 plus or minus 60 kilometers, half the size of the largest asteroids other than Ceres, then what would have actually been amazing and unusual is if it were not egg-shaped. Our best estimates today are that it's something like 250 by 146 by 128 kilometers, giving an average radius of 167 plus or minus 4 kilometers, which, if you want to be really strict about it, is not 200 kilometers, unless you round it to the nearest one significant figure. But I'm not going to be that strict about it. Rather, I think the entire point of it being egg-shaped being a prediction of something unknown is false. Given what we knew and know about other objects of similar sizes and that the basic physics calculations show that an object that size cannot pull itself into a sphere. This was not something that was unknown to scientists at the time. But it was not written down, just like they didn't feel the need to write down anywhere that a moon of Jupiter is going to orbit the planet Jupiter. It's just something that is, and it would be weird and unusual if it weren't. The final topic is a bit more of a difficult one, and it's one that I really don't like. It's not that I don't like it for what it says, but it's that I don't like it because I think there's evidence of going back and faking one of the contact reports online and I have not been able to obtain an original to verify or refute my suspicions. I will say this, with full knowledge that I'll probably be quoted and quote mind, that if the translation of Contact Report 123 is correct, as currently is on the Billy Meyer wiki, and if it is verifiable that the German used for that translation was published before 1992— and the date on the report is correct of 1979, then this is a case where Meyer was incredibly specific and appears to have forecast something that did happen. But, for reasons that I'll explain momentarily, I have my doubts as to the authenticity. The subject matter is Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9's impact into Jupiter in 1994. Contact Report 123, as it is currently written and translated online, as the alien Semyazi stating that a comet's orbit, quote, "...will bring it back to Jupiter in the year 1994, between the 10th and 25th of July. It will first appear as a comet, only to explode into about 20 pieces when it approaches the planet Jupiter. Then, within a number of hours, these fragments will all be attracted to the planet one after another and will crash down on it." End quote that was written allegedly on June 4, 1979. The wiki page of it was first up in 2011. Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 was discovered in 1993. It broke into about 23 main pieces, not 20 if you want to quibble, and it impacted Jupiter between July 16th and 22nd over the course of six days. Now, there are some admittedly very minor differences between the facts of the case and the Meyer supposed statement, like the number of fragments, the exact dates of impact, how big the original body was, and Meyer's whole backstory that I didn't read to you, but the so-called destroyer that ripped it from its original Jovian orbit back in 13,384 B.C., all that stuff. One could quibble about it, but I consider those minor and unimportant in this case at this time. The question is, did Meyer actually write that back in 1979, 14 years before the discovery by the shoemakers and Levy? I don't think so. I have two main reasons for thinking that this contact report, as it is currently written online, is not genuine. And if someone can show somehow that it is, I would be very interested. And by that, I mean I would need to see the original book with the original copyright and get an independent translation. So, why don't I think this contact report is genuine? It's because of two later contact reports themselves. First is number 150, written in October of 1981, two years and four months after contact report 123. Contact report 150 has a part where Meyer is reciting back a timeline to the aliens. He states, quote, Concurrent with the passage of the Destroyer in the Jupiter system, it pulls a small, ancient moon with a diameter of about 4 kilometers out of its orbit and hurls it with immense speed out into space of the Sol system on an unknown path accompanied by several smaller asteroids. At first, this moon loses itself in a very distant orbital path where it then reemerges after a long time and moved through the Sol system time and time again until one day it will be recaptured by Jupiter and will crash down into it with great certainty, which, according to our calculations, will be around the time of the turn of the 20th to the 21st century AD. Quote. To me, that's fairly nonspecific. And it's basically making a statement that could be claimed as a hit or miss pretty much no matter what. It mentions an object 4 kilometers across, which is a normal size for a comet, but a very small size for a moon, especially a moon that formed an orbit around a planet. It also says that this moon will hit Jupiter sometime around the turn of the 21st century. One would be able to say that this could be an unobserved hit if we never saw it, that it did actually happen, we just didn't observe it. We happen to now see observations of uh, of stuff hitting Jupiter every couple of years with the amateur telescopes and webcams and lots of good photography equipment being able to photograph it you know, nearly constantly now, but we didn't before. That doesn't mean that there's a sudden increase. That means that we now have better detection. As for this contact report, it lacks other specifics, especially the specifics written in Contact Report 123, and it's not something that I would say is a very strong, very specific prediction. One could probably still use it if they really wanted to as a prediction, just I don't consider it to be a very strong one. It also does not reference Contact Report 123, which Meyer frequently does when he mentions something specific that he talked about in a previous Contact Report. Then we have Contact Report 248, which came out in February 1994, after Shoemaker-Levy 9 was discovered and everything was known about it. Billy talks about it and says this, quote, During the 150th contact report, dated Saturday, the 10th of October, 1981, 3.15 a.m., Quetzal spoke of the fact that a small moon, about 4 kilometers in diameter, was torn away from Jupiter by the destroyer in the year 13384 B.C. and was sent on a journey with which several smaller asteroids followed along. It was then said that this small moon would return one day, or one day return, to its place of origin, even to Jupiter, in order, then, to crash down on it. In addition, now the following. Earthly scientists have made the discovery that, at present, a small planetoid about 4 kilometers in diameter is approaching Jupiter on a collision course, accompanied by several asteroids following it. According to scientific calculations, this small planetoid, which is called Shoemaker-Levy 9, is to crash down on Jupiter in the middle of the year 1994, just beyond the horizon that is visible from the Earth. Is this small planetoid the small moon mentioned by Quetzal, which went on a journey from Jupiter in the year 13384 BC, and which now celebrates its return to its place of origin, or is this another space projectile? Bata, the alien or E.T. that he's talking to in this particular report, then says that this is indeed the moon talked about in that contact report. For those who've been listening to the podcast for a long time, you might think that this sounds kind of similar to what Billy did after the discovery of asteroid Apophis, which I talked about in episode 49. But more specific to this, notice that there is zero mention of contact report 123, which allegedly had a lot more specifics in it. Instead, Meyer takes great pains to point out what he wrote on Saturday, October tenth, nineteen 1981 at 3.15 a.m. in Contact Report 150, that there would be an object that would hit Jupiter sometime around the turn of the 21st century. But again, he makes zero mention of Contact Report 123, where apparently all of the important, very specific data were stated, including the number of fragments, the dates of impact, etc., etc. Not a single mention. It's also not mentioned in some of the confirmation reports by others of Meyer's material. Because of that inconsistency, and because Meyer does not refer back to 123, which would seem to be a crowning achievement in prophetic accuracy of this event, I don't think that 123, as is currently represented, is accurate relative to what it stated originally. With that in mind, Contact Report 150, as I said, I think is too vague to be considered a good prediction of this event. I think that, at best, all that can be said for this particular prediction is that it would seem to be very strong, but there is reasonable evidence to cast doubt on its authenticity. Now, after going through these admittedly very few examples, even though it's taken almost an hour uh, relative to the entire body of Meyer's writings, and even the body of alleged confirmed prediction statements, where are we? Well, I started off by pointing out that the claim is that Billy Meyer was told these various things before anyone, anyone on Earth knew about them. In other places, the claim is that he knew about them before any scientist on Earth knew about them. Since they were later shown to be true, then Meyer must have been told by someone not from Earth. That makes sense. I then investigated several of these. I focused on the statements about Jupiter and Saturn. I looked not just at what some people have pointed to as confirmed prophecies, but also at where Jupiter or Saturn have appeared in the contact reports that were not claimed verified predictions. What I showed was that some of the statements were factually wrong such as Io having craters or that Jupiter's rings will be gone by 1987. Some statements were too vague to really score as verified or not, like the number of moons of Jupiter or Saturn. I also showed that nearly all of the statements that were strictly objective and factually correct were, in fact, known to people on Earth before Maya wrote about them, such as about Jupiter's aurora and Io affecting them. In some cases, the knowledge by terrestrial scientists was by several months, and some by possibly a matter of weeks, but for others, like whether Jupiter had rings, by over a decade. There was one main exception to this, and that was the details for Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9. In that case, Contact Report 123 was highly specific. And yet, in later reports, even after the comet was officially discovered, and in a report that refers back to an earlier report, No mention is made of the highly specific CR-123. Because of this, I posit that it has been altered, after the fact. If someone can show me the book where it was published, that it was written down before 1993, and I can get an independent translation of the German, then I'll reevaluate that conclusion. Until then, I think the data are highly suggestive of tampering. So where are we? For most listeners of this podcast, I'm guessing that you're not going to be very surprised. Keep in mind that it is very difficult to show a negative in this case, that the information was not known. I could search for weeks and perhaps not find anything, but then someone may find a paper or a story or an old archive that I didn't have access to that lays out exactly what Meyer said, maybe even just a day before Meyer actually wrote it down. For several examples in this episode, I think that I've done a fairly good job showing that this information was known before Meyer wrote about it. At the very least, this means that these are not strong corroborations of Meyer's foreknowledge of something. At the most, one could say that in every case here, except one that's subject to validation of the contact report, I've shown that Meyer was A. simply writing about popular ideas at the time that were already out there, and there was no clear evidence that he was told something that was unknown to anyone at the time, B. that he speculated about some things and got some of them wrong, and C he was sometimes vague enough in some of the writings that regardless of future scientific knowledge, he had out written in so that one could claim that he was wrong, or one could claim that he was right. In other words, too vague. One could speculate, if they really wanted to, that if they did a similar investigation into other claimed ironclad prophecies of evidence, that they would come up with a similar findings as I did here. If I had to guess, it would be that certain critics of my work will likely now claim that okay, perhaps this information was known just prior to Meyer writing about it, but how could Meyer possibly have gotten the information from some obscure journal? I have two preemptive answers to that, though they probably will almost certainly be unsatisfied with both. First, most of these were known, or at least openly discussed, months if not years before the writings by Meyer. Only in Possibly one case was it a matter of a week or so, that of the volcanism on Io. Second, you have moved the goalpost. The claim was that this information was unknown to anyone on Earth. I have shown that to be falsified. Moving the goalpost and now saying that it may have been known to some people but not to Meyer is changing the claim to something that neither I nor you could possibly hope to verify or refute. I have no idea how Meyer may or may not have had access to the information. Perhaps he had an astronomer friend. Perhaps he had a friend who had an astronomer friend who told him about stuff while they were gardening or whatever. Perhaps he read newspapers or listened to the radio. All of that is speculation, and it's not my job nor my goal to speculate how Meyer may have come across the information that was known before he wrote about it. With that said, let me be very clear that I'm not accusing Meyer of lying. I'm stating that the evidence that I've gathered, and now related to you, the listener, is most consistent with him having gotten the information from terrestrial sources, making high probability prediction statements, or being simply incorrect in some cases with his guesses. That is most consistent with him just writing stuff down on his own as opposed to getting the information from extraterrestrials. And so, with that in mind, I'm going to wrap up the main segment of this episode with this final statement. Every press release is written to stretch the truth as much as possible to try to make the new work look good. Press releases will often say that this is a novel discovery or new information, and they will fail to tell you that it was known, theorized, discussed, or modeled earlier. Therefore, saying that something was only shown to be known 20 years after Meyer wrote about it, and making that claim based on some press release or just some popular astronomy picture of the day, such as the composition of Jupiter's rings, is not the way to do this kind of investigation. You have to comb through the primary literature and the popular press, and even then, There are solid examples where even research papers will fail to mention previous work on the subject in favor of trying to say that their work was the first with such a result. In fact, I blogged about this, I think, about uh, six months ago or so. In other words, as an example, all because Meyer talked about Jupiter's aurora in 1986 and said that the sun plays a role, and you have a press release from 2006 that says, quote, New studies of auroras on Jupiter are changing how scientists think the biggest light shows in the solar system are formed, like auroras on Earth, the sun plays an important role. End quote. That does not mean we didn't know that the sun affected Jupiter's aurora before 2006. In fact, in that particular case, which is claimed Corroboration 92, every newspaper that reported on Voyager 1's observations of Jupiter in 1979 that's seven years before this contact report, said that the sun caused aurora on Jupiter. Alright, this is a long episode, let's zoom through the rest as fast as possible. So, new news, or actually is a bit of new news this episode related to episode 67, the Chelyabinsk meteorite. The largest chunk known has been raised from a lake after divers were finally able to find it in the murky waters. The chunk is very roughly 1 meter, or about 3 feet across, and it weighs a little bit over half a ton, or half a metric ton, weighing in at 570 kilograms, or about 1,250 pounds. This is probably only 0.5% of the entire object, or the entire original object, estimated at about 17 meters across, but it's unlikely that much larger chunks will be found, if any, because the rock pretty much exploded about 50 kilometers up. Now, due to the length of this episode, as opposed to the, uh, laziness of the host, there is no Q&A or puzzler this episode, as I said, as opposed to me just being lazy. Uh, But I did want to address one bit of feedback from Jason G from Des Moines, Moines, Iowa, uh, United States. He wrote in basically saying, thanks for the podcast episode, last one. I'm always happy when a new episode shows up. I have a hard time understanding why the ratios of oxygen 17 to 18 matter and why they can change together at all. If the proportion of oxygen 18 to 16 can change, why can't the proportion of 18 to 17? I've seen where 18 to 16 ratios can change due to elevation and temperature, why does 17 perfectly track with 18? If that weren't the case, it could be that Mars' overabundance of oxygen 17 compared with 18 might be because the rich atmosphere of Earth was disproportionately bled of its lighter oxygen isotope. I also have a hard time understanding why this causes a problem for the giant impact model of lunar formation. I would picture much of the material from the collision falling back to the Earth instead of orbiting in a disk of debris that formed the Moon, meaning that no matter what each body started with, the end result would be well-mixed, at least near the surface. Is that not the case? So a key to understanding what's going on here is that unlike other isotopes, especially ones that I've talked about recently in such things like Mars being murdered or radiometric dating, oxygen 16, 17, and 18 are stable. They don't decay. Therefore, any ratio they're in in a closed system should not change with time. With that in mind, we see the same stable oxygen isotope ratio in Earth and the moon, but we see very different ratios in Mars not talking about the atmosphere, but bound up in the rocks themselves. We also see different ratios in asteroids, as in within the rocks and the minerals that we examine from meteorites. So this doesn't have to do with the atmosphere. It has to do with the atoms being part of the rocks themselves, which is something that I think a lot of people don't realize. The atom oxygen is a major constituent of most rock types. For example, granite is primarily silica and alumina, And silica is made of one atom of silicon and two oxygen atoms as well. Alumina is two atoms of aluminum and three of oxygen. And not only that, but you can do pretty much whatever you want to that rock. You can melt it, vaporize it, mix it with other rocks of the same planet. And these stable ratios of one isotope of oxygen to the other stay the same. They change in abundance, but they don't change relative to each other. That's why they're so good to use for this sort of thing. Moving on, because we see different oxygen isotope ratios in rocks that we know came from different parent bodies, one would logically assume that there were slightly different ratios in different spots in the solar system when it was forming. So if the giant impact or big splash model is correct, the parent body should have come from a different spot in the solar system, and so the parent body that smashed into Earth to form the Moon should probably have had different oxygen isotope ratios than Earth. The problem is that, dynamically, to get the system that we have today, the big splash model, the Moon, should have reformed mostly from material from the original parent body. We can't really get it to dynamically mix well or for the material from the moon to be primarily from Earth or a really, really well mixing from the Earth and the moon. That's where they're focusing now with the models, to try to see if there are other ways to do it, to mix the Earth and the moon better, to get the oxygen isotopes the same, or to have the moon, or at least the crust, form more from Earth-type material. I mean, the other problem is that we think the moon basically had a magma ocean, when it was uh, just after it formed, and so a lot of the stuff from the middle, the mantle, that would definitely have been from the original body, sort of should have floated to the top, and you get these weird issues, so we have to better understand a lot in order to really narrow in on whether this is a problem or it isn't a problem. It's also possible that we don't understand how oxygen isotopes vary across the solar system. That's why figuring out what they are for Venus rocks or Venusian rocks would place another important constraint on the models. If they're the same as Earth, then this makes it much more likely that the Moon's original impacting body could have been similar and that this would be less of an issue. But if Venus oxygen isotopes are different from everything else, different from Mars, different from Earth, different from asteroids then this reinforces the idea that the ones between Earth and the body that hit Earth that formed the moon should have had different ratios, meaning that this is still an issue for the models. Thanks, Jason, for sending that in. And again, I've heard occasionally that people have issues understanding some stuff that I talk about. If you do, please send it in. Chances are that you are not alone. And as I did right now, if it seems like this is an important issue, then I will address it in the next episode. If not, then I'll do it by email, personally. As for announcements, well, the 100th episode is rapidly approaching, as in, probably it's going to be put out February 1st of 2014. I'm planning something a little bit different for it that I'd like to keep as a bit of a surprise. But let's just say that if anyone has a phone or a microphone and or Skype, and you're good at making stuff up, or just gushing about how much you love the show or something like that, send me an email, and uh, you might get a spot on the show. If you happen to have listened to a certain late-night paranormal radio show, that's a plus. I'd also like to thank everyone who's taken the time to rate the podcast on iTunes or other websites. It does greatly help increase visibility, and it helps others find it. I was trolling through the iTunes reviews the other day, and was overjoyed to find a total of over 100 ratings spread across, of course, a variety of countries. The United States has the most at 70, but I'm a little bit surprised at some of the countries that don't have any. I mean, I've gotten a download from Iran, so why haven't you written a review? If you happen to be in one of those more underrepresented countries, like not the United States, Canada, UK, or Australia, please consider taking a moment or three if you have iTunes and going to write a review. As for those other four that I just mentioned, keep it up. U.S. folks, think we can make 100 by the 100th episode? As for a final announcement, I'll just say that there might be some interesting feedback on this episode. If you're listening to it a week or so after the fact, after I put it out, so uh, what is this? After October 21st, or so a few weeks later, maybe after October 28th, um, you might want to head over to the blog and see what people are saying. I'm going to state now that I do not plan on responding to any posts there on the blog. I will also say that I plan to let all comments through as long as they do not contain very lengthy essays and they are not chock full of links to Billy Meyer's material. They need to be focused and on topic. Well, then, that all wraps up this 90th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If y'all have any feedback, please use 1. The feedback form on the website. 2. Send an email to podcast at 3. You can leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can even tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If y'all have any suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, Then you can also tell your friends, family, y'all got two random or ten random people on the internet that you'll never meet in real life that y'all can recommend the podcast to. And I have no idea why I did that in a fake southern accent, so sorry to all y'all southerners.